Our second lesson this morning is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, beginning to read at verse 19. And so then, those who were scattered abroad because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came about that for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. We have been thinking this week about something of the beginnings of Montreat. We have thought about, in reflecting upon the past, the commitments that were originally made to the founders who came to our valley. We have thought also about times in which we have sought to clarify the meaning of that commitment. And therefore, I have titled the sermon this morning, Clarify Your Creed. I was asked to speak again of parts of a sermon that I had given some years ago called What is a Christian? It's a very basic sermon, but when you get back to the basics, it helps you. I can remember well when I played football for a man who was a very great football coach and on a championship ball club that had a lot of very fine players, some who even made the Hall of Fame. He used to always, if we did not do well on the Friday night, on Monday, we went back to the very basics of the ball game. He wanted the blocking and the tackling drills to be fierce. He wanted us to go over those basics because he believed that that's where ball games were won or lost. It's more important to us then in thinking about our faith to go back and see what we mean by these basics to our faith uh, and to clarify our creed, to see what we believe. That's what happened 10 years ago when we began to see that so much of the conduct that seemed to go on around our institution and a part of what was even being taught was contrary really to what we had said that we believed and what we stood for. And so there was a clarification of our creed. Credo means what I believe. We behave the way we behave because we believe the way we believe. Belief and behavior go hand in hand. And so that's why I had the part read from Ephesians where Paul, after three chapters dealing with the great doctrines of our historic faith, all the way back into the counsels of God and predestination and election, comes to the very practical parts that if we have been thus redeemed, then we are to walk worthy of the vocation to which we have been called. And so if I ask myself this question, what is a Christian? And I seek to clarify the meaning 
of my creed. I have to go back and see how that word was originally used. It was not applied by Christians to themselves at first, but it was applied by the pagan world outside who watched them. Actually, the word Christian only occurs three times in the New Testament. The first is in Acts 11:26, which I read in your hearing a moment ago. It came in the afterglow of Easter. It came after our Lord Jesus had been risen from the dead, after his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. When they were aware of the power of the living Christ, they were invested with a new power to preach and to proclaim his name. Someone said to me the other day that Easter is what makes Good Friday good. Easter is what makes Pentecost possible. Easter is what makes Christmas merry. And without this, then we have no faith. And so it's very important for us to know the one in whom we believe and to know him. We go back and we read Acts 11:26 that not just anyone was called a Christian, but the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So if you study about a disciple and what a disciple is, you're pushed back to the pages of the Gospels, where you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over 200 times using the word disciple. Because our Lord Jesus laid down some rather stringent demands for those who would follow him, when he had set his face to go toward the cross, and he wanted those who followed him to understand the full meaning of what a commitment to him would entail. He sought to make very plain to them that it was not going to be a frolic, that it was going to be a fight, and that they were to understand this. And it came to pass, this is in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it came about that when the days were approaching for his ascension, that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, what do you want us to do? Command fire to come down from heaven. He rebuked them. And then they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone came to him and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another, follow me. But he said, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. These three candidates for discipleship which had come to him had to realize that the one with whom they are dealing is indeed from God. And when they realize this, they will know that the demands which he makes, which are so absolute, are not unreasonable. That's what we must understand today. We have to go back to see what the content of the Christian faith is like. And when we do go into the Christian faith and seek to understand it, we find that it has a doctrinal content. We see that there are, there are important things that we must believe concerning this Jesus and who he claimed to be. 
I would not follow him in this way if he had not asserted that he was the bread of life, that he was the light of the world, that he was the door, the good shepherd, the true vine. If he had not said, Verily I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. If he had not said, I am the resurrection and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me, then I wouldn't put this much trust and confidence in him. But because he makes these claims, and doctrine is important, that's the teaching concerning the person of Jesus Christ, if he is who he claimed to be, then he is God incarnate in human flesh. For he said, I and the Father are one. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. He makes these assertions. And no amount of criticism can dissolve them from the pages of the gospel. They're there, and we're confronted with them. I have people who say to me, well, it doesn't make any difference what you believe. That's the craziest thing you can possibly say. I remember an idiot, a little funny thing that used to occur in chemistry class. I'm sure in high school where you were, they had this thing on the board in the chemistry room. It said, shed a tear for Johnny Brown, poor Johnny is no more, for what he thought was H2O was H2SO4. Uh, H2SO4 is sulfuric acid. It makes a lot of difference what you believe. And uh, you can learn that even in high school chemistry. Uh, then it's more important who I'm going to stake my life on for all eternity. And so when I understand that he claims to be uniquely the Son of God, and when I come to an event such as we came to last Sunday on Easter, and know that he had gone to the cross to die for me, and that God raised him from the dead, then this means that there is great power in him. Power in what he has done. Power to take away my sins and cause me to know that just as surely as he has died for me upon that cross, just so surely am I completely forgiven of my sins. That's how much he loved me. He loved me that much. Chuck Wright, one of our a distinguished member of the board of trustees of our school, the minister of the North Avenue Church in Atlanta, was by our house the other night. He had a doctor friend, a medical doctor, a very loving, devoted person, the kind of man that you could call in the middle of the night and who would be out on an errand of mercy. And Chuck said that uh, his doctor friend was driving after having been in attendance upon someone who was ill back to his home. And he had taken a shortcut on an unfamiliar road, but a road that was familiar to some of his family, and he saw the lights of a car that had gone off the road, and it was evident that an accident had taken place. He stopped his car and got out in the darkness and ran up to the accident that had occurred. When he got close, he began to shudder because it was one of the cars in his family, and he recognized it. And then when he got closer to the car, he saw his own beloved daughter had been crushed behind the wheel of the car. He took her in his arms and hugged her to himself and wept and told her that he loved her. And those were the last words that she ever heard in this life. She died in his arms and he was telling her that he loved her. God loved us so much that at the cross, 
he takes us to himself and says, I love you this much. And therefore your sins, which are many, can all be washed away. Your sins, not in part, but the whole. They are nailed to the cross. You need bear them no more. You can say, praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. It's important for us to know that next point, which is not only uh, has to do with doctrine, but has to do with our redemption, that redemptive relationship to the Lord Jesus, brings me to the place where I know him as the one who loved me and who gave himself for me. There is a verse that Paul writes in 2 Timothy in which he states to young Timothy in this last letter that he pins, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now, do you see the intensely personal way that he speaks? Did you notice when Lee Seacrest spoke a while ago, he told you about an apathetic experience in his life when he went through the dull, monotonous routine of religion. And then there came a time when the living Christ was no longer marginal and vague, but he becomes the dominant force in his life. And both he and Arlene went through an experience with Christ in which the Holy Spirit swept into their hearts and caused them to bear testimony to the faith which had grown stale and monotonous before, but which now became alive and vibrant in them. How often I have seen this happen. We must know, we must know that Jesus is who he claimed to be the Son of God. We must know that he died upon the cross to redeem us from our sin. That when we take the Holy Supper, that his broken body and his shed blood were shed for a purpose so that this problem of sin can be dealt with. And when that is dealt with, then we come to a devotional relationship to him. One in which the word of God and prayer become meaningful to us. It's when we can open the Bible as one would open a love letter and read it and know that these things are being written to us and that he is speaking to the deep needs of our heart. That when we turn to the 51st Psalm and we read David's great confession about sin, we can know that the God who loved and forgave this man will love and forgive me of my sins. When we are afraid, we can read those Psalms and know that what time we are afraid, we can trust in him and be assured of his presence and that he is always with us. And the blessing of prayer, how great this is. When I think of this school and I think of prayer, I, I don't think anyone mentioned him the other night, but his presence pervades the place. L. Nelson Bell prayed for this school. The library over there is a fitting and beautiful tribute to him. But I can never forget as a young pastor going through the troubles that you usually encounter your first year in a ministry. I remember coming over here because he had been on the commission that installed me and my goodness, that was back in 1955. 
uh, all those years ago, 24 years ago this June. And I drove over here to his house. And I'll never forget that after we had chatted and talked about the particular problem, when I left, he said, by the way, I want you to know that I prayed for you to come here, and I have you on my daily prayer list, and I pray for you every day, by name, specifically. You know, I left there just almost floating. To think Dr. Bell was praying for me, <laughs> I knew that things were going to be better, and it made a great deal of difference to me. We have a devotional relationship to Jesus Christ, and this devotional relationship is cultivated when we gather with other Christian friends for worship such as this. Here we have wonderful speakers who come to our chapel and who share with us truths which they have learned uh, from the Word of God which are able to inspire us. There are some favorite lines of mine that come from beautiful English poetry where a father takes back his son to visit the prep school that he had gone to as a young lad in England. And when he brings him into the chapel, he says, this is the chapel. And here, my son, your father thought the thoughts of youth and heard the words which one by one the touch of life has turned to truth. Not 45 minutes ago before I came in here, a former student of this college came back into my study and said that he had to leave to catch a bus. But he said, I wanted to come in and speak to you because of something that's happened in my life and what happened here years ago and how much it means to me now that this thing has taken place and he had hit some of the storms of life that were raging in his own walk. The touch of life will turn to truth. These words which we read here, the disciples, a disciple is a learner and he keeps on learning. A disciple commits himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He knows him in this redemptive relationship. He knows him in an, a devotional relationship. He knows him in an institutional relationship, the church. The church is necessary. Now, the word church, ecclesia, those who are called out by God, is used about 150 times in the New Testament. It's never used of a building. It's never used of a denomination. It's used of a collection of believers who may be meeting in someone's house. They meet and they love Jesus. They love him and know him as the Christ of God. They read his word. They observe him. And from this we do have a relationship to a church which is important for us because we need the fellowship that's there. We need the instruction of the word. We need the encouragement of other friends. I have people who say to me sometimes that they listen on the radio. Well, you wait for the radio to come and help you when someone dies. Uh, wait for the radio to come and help you when you're faced with a big operation. But if you belong to a local assembly of believers, you will find that there are other believers who care about you and who will come to you in your need and who will assist you and bless you. And so I have that relationship. It means that I have made a confession of my faith in Christ and that I am a part of his body manifesting his presence to other people out there in the world. A moment ago, in his wonderful prayer, Lee Seacrest mentioned the crusade for Christ that Billy Graham is uh, engaged in in Australia. 
He will come back to this country in June and then we'll go to Nashville, Tennessee. And yesterday I received some of the pre-crusade literature and in looking over it, I could not help but think of a man there who clarified his creed and through the clarification uh, became a Christian. Dr. Walter Courtney was a distinguished minister for many years of the First Presbyterian Church in, Ch in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, uh, those of you who have heard Dr. Courtney know that he's a very gifted and eloquent speaker. And once I was with Ben Hayden, who was a uh, very dear friend of mine in his seminary days, and Ben is also a great preacher. And uh, Ben said, did you, ever, did you ever hear Dr. Courtney tell about his conversion? I said, no. And he said, well, that's the most unusual conversion I've ever heard. Well, now, if you know Ben Hayden, and if he says someone's conversion is unusual, he knows a lot of unusual conversions. So I wanted to hear about Dr. Courtney's conversion. And then one time I was preaching in that church in, in Nashville, and we were invited out to lunch with Dr. Courtney. And I asked Dr. Courtney if he would, uh, I told him what Ben had said, and I said, could you tell me about your conversion? And he said, well, after World War I, he had had a brother who had been killed in the war, and that this had shaken his confidence in the love of God. Then he had a sister whom he adored who died with the flu, and this had crushed him. He became a skeptic, an agnostic, who had no faith in God and who cared nothing about the Lord. As he went away to college, he went to a, a place where there was a very beautiful girl that he was attracted to who sang in a singing group that used to go from church to church on Sunday afternoon and sing. Well, he was trying to get better acquainted with this lovely lady. And so he had a good voice, and they put him into the singing group. And so he went with her to uh, places where they were singing. And it was customary for the person who introduced them to ask members of the singing group to give their testimony. They had assumed that Dr. Courtney was a Christian. Uh, he was a young man. They thought he was singing these hymns, that he was a Christian. And so they asked him to give his testimony. Well, what are you going to say? They presented him to the crowd, and he thought, oh, they're so stupid, I'll fake it. And so he made up all this story about all the sins he had done and about how the Lord would reach to him and saved him. And right in the middle of this big lie, he broke down crying in front of all the people, and he was trembling. And he said, what I've been telling you is not true. I am not a believer, but I want to become one, and I hope you'll pray for me. And he got saved listening to his own testimony. <laughs> he clarified his creed. It's a good thing to do. Clarify your creed. Come back to what you believe and see what's there. Down at our house the other day, uh, uh, oh, his buddy oh, is in the wintertime. Bill Wilson had stopped to see us. He, Dr. Wilson is chairman of biological psychiatry at Duke Medical School. And uh, I call him the crying shrink because every time he gives his testimony, he has to take his glasses off and wipe the tears out of his eyes. Have you heard him? <laughs> and Bill uh, was telling me about his conversion. And uh, he had uh, written a paper called the Alexander the Great Syndrome. 
And this has to do with patients who come to psychiatrists who, after they've made a lot of money and they've got a boat and they've got everything else they want and their kids are in the college and graduated, and then they look at their wife and wonder if what they need is maybe to junk her and get a 22-year-old one and jazz up life a little bit more that way or to trade. Uh, he said he gets these people all the time. And so he called it the Alexander the Great Syndrome, and he wrote a paper, it went all over the world, he got a lot of letters about it. And then he, he was an atheist, and he went up to Canada because he had had a trip planned that he had wanted to take always a trip down the wilderness journey through Canada. So he got up there and, and got on this wilderness thing that was one of those trips like Jimmy Carter took where you go down the river, and um, he was alone with a guide who of all people was a campus crusade for Christ, uh, a person. Well, he went over the four spiritual laws. Jim thought it was the corniest thing he ever, Bill thought it was the corniest thing he ever heard. He, he uh, listened to the guy's testimony, but then he reasoned, I can't make him mad because he's the guide and he knows the way out of here, and if I get him mad at me, I'm gonna have to scrub all the dishes and do everything else every night. And uh, so, he said he would lie in his sleeping bag at night in that wilderness and look up at the stars and just wonder if there really was a God. And if there was, could he possibly be interested in a professor at Duke Medical School who didn't believe in him? And then he said he humbled himself. And he said, God, if you are for real and you make yourself known to me, I swear to you, I'll give myself to you. He said when he got back home, the first thing his wife and his children noticed was that his language had toned down. He was not swearing as violently and using the kind of language that he used to use. He said he got a copy of the Bible, but it was a King James Bible, and he got in the begats over in the Old Testament. He couldn't make any sense out of it, and he put it away. Then someone gave him a translation of the Bible that he could read, and he started reading the Gospel of John. And then when he got to the part about the new birth, he was gloriously born again. And now then, the man who used to take Bibles away from his patients because he called them a crutch, hands Bibles to his patients and tells them about the redeeming love of the Savior. He has joined himself institutionally to the church and is faithful to it. Now then, the last thing I want to mention is that a Christian has to be a person who is ethically bound to Christ. Walk worthy of the vocation to which you are called is what Paul uh, wanted to tell us in Ephesians and what we will be studying this Wednesday night in our prayer meeting. We need to keep this very much in mind. A few years ago, the Duke of Windsor died in France. And when he died, they had on television those things that they keep on footage. I remember once going in a big television studio, and I was surprised when I saw the names of familiar people. And Leighton Ford was with me, and he said, you know what that is? And I said, no. Had all these famous people that everyone knows. He said, those are obituary footage files. He said, when one of these guys dies, they just pull this out and put the time of the death on it and run it on TV. And when, when uh, uh, the Duke of Windsor died, they had file footage of shots that they had made of interviews with him in times past, and they began to show uh, this uh, film of his life. And in this, 
he said that his father, who was George V, was a very strict disciplinarian, and that in his earlier upbringing, his father sought to always impress upon him the dignity of who he was. I shall never forget, this is what the Duke of Windsor said, my father saying to me when I had done something wrong or had misbehaved, he would admonish me, my dear boy, you must always remember who you are. In other words, if he had only remembered that he was the crown prince of England, then he would not descend to doing something that was dishonorable to the crown. And what Paul tells us in Ephesians is if we make all these claims doctrinally and, and redemptively and, and institutionally and devotionally to Jesus Christ, then ethically we must live a life that is consistent with the profession of faith we make. Now write this down if you've got a pencil or, and keep it. No Christian is spiritual who is not ethical. No Christian is spiritual who is not ethical. Because when we belong to Jesus Christ, we are to obey him and work out in life, day by day, our devotion to him. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can accept him today. Doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian, but it does take all of him. You have to give as much of yourself as you know to as much of Jesus Christ as has been revealed to you. And when you do, he will come into your heart and he will make you what you ought to be. May I close, because we have so many young people, by saying that at a church service years ago, my old pastor gave this poem, and in response to it, I made a yielding of my life to the Lord. It was a call to follow Christ. I said, let me walk in the field. And he said, no, walk in the town. I said, but there are no flowers there. And he said, no flowers, but a crown. I said, but the skies are black. There is nothing but noise and din. He wept as he sent me back. There is more, he said, there is sin. I said, but the air is thick and fogs are veiling the sun. He answered, yet souls are sick and souls in the dark undone. I said, I shall miss the light and friends will miss me, they say. He answered, choose tonight if I am to miss you or they. I pleaded for time to be given. He said, is it hard to decide? It will not have seemed hard in heaven to have followed the steps of your guide. I cast one look at the fields, then set my face toward the town. He said, my child, do you yield? Will you leave the flowers for the crown? Then into his hand went mine, and into my heart came he. And I walk with a light divine, the path I had feared to see. Now then, clarify your creed. Where do you stand in your relationship to Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord? Have you made your commitment to him? Are your convictions based on him? Is your conduct worthy of him? If you have not, 
you can give your heart to him now. Pray. Oh God, our Father, these are very big issues that we've touched upon this morning. When we look back to the beginning and see the price that those earliest disciples prayed, we pray that the world today might see that we are true disciples of Jesus Christ, that we indeed believe who he is and what he came to do, and that because of that we want our lives to reflect his honor and glory. Wherein we have failed you, we seek your pardon and forgiveness. We pray that you will clarify the meaning of our commitment and that you will help us to yield ourselves to you without any reservation, with no holding back. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore.